Do you ever wonder why your dog gets to live a better life than you do? <laughs> like every morning, you get up, you bust your back to go to work, come home, put food on the table, and maybe put enough aside that you can go on vacation, live or lay by a pool, and experience the same life your dog lives every day. <laughs> Just watch your dog. Right? Some of you are like, I don't have a dog, I have a cat. That's even worse. <laughs> the dog like, gets up when you do, like, oh, are we getting up now? Okay. Oh, I guess I'll take a nap in a few minutes, but I'll walk outside, look around. Any squirrels I'm going to catch later? Okay. Oh, somebody put food out. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to drink this water. I'm going to take a nap. Are you waking up? You're going to work? You're going, we're going on a walk right now? No? Okay, okay, yeah. Later we're going to walk. Later. I'm just going to hang out here. I'm just going to hang out here. Sleep all day, lay in the sun, eat more food, chase more squirrels, right? And maintaining a positive attitude all the time. <laughs> and you come home and you're like, hey, you want to go for a walk? And your dog's like, absolutely, right? Your dog's never like, I'm too tired. No, absolutely. Let's go. Let's go on a walk. This is going to be great. I love everything I do. This is a great life. Thank you, master, for this life you've given me. <laughs> and we don't get to live like that. God has cursed us <laughs> with the ability to see more than just what's in the moment. I think that's one of the biggest things that separates us from the animals. You know, there's a lot of things, but one of the biggest things that separates us from the animals is that human beings have the ability to envision, right? You can envision a great life for yourself and go after it. You can envision a great family. You can envision a great business. You can envision a great future. You can forecast thousands of years down the road and say, what kind of a legacy do I want to leave when I walk off of this planet and into eternity someday? I promise you, your dog does not think about those things. Your dog's like, squirrel, squirrel. Somebody say, did, somebody say, did you say walk? Did somebody say walk? I heard the word walk. Did somebody say walk? Squirrel. That's what your dog does. Yet God has given you the ability to envision more. And this morning, as we turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this phrase that Solomon uses in chapter 3, verse 11, that says that God has set eternity in the human heart. He has set eternity in the human heart. And this is one of those Christian bumper stickers that, that reminds us that, oh yeah, we can all believe in Jesus and someday we know that heaven is real, right? That's not what Solomon means. When Solomon uses this verse in this chapter, in this book, in the Bible, what Solomon is saying is that for every human being, he has given them the ability to see long beyond the timeline that's right in front of them. But there's something about this eternal perspective that your dog doesn't have, but you have. You can see grandkids in your future. You can see great-great-grandchildren. You can think about things like legacy. You can picture the world after you leave it. You have this eternal perspective that animals don't have that sometimes can kind of curse us. And we don't get to enjoy our life like our dog because we're trying to make enough money to live the retirement life that we've envisioned. We have these kids that are in front of us, and we want to spend time with these kids, but we're too busy with all the stuff that we're picturing for later, and so we're trying to save up money for their college so we don't have time to hang out with them today, right? We talked about that last week. That this eternal view that we have in our hearts sometimes get in the way 
of just being able to experience the life that God has put right in front of us. As we wrestle with this topic of time and opportunity and vision and creating a life for ourselves, I think the hard reality that I want to wrestle with today is that most of us will devote our entire lives to striving for greatness we will never achieve. That sounds like a total like bummer, right? I don't mean that you are destined for mediocrity. That's not what I'm saying. You might do amazing things, right? What I mean by this, that most of us will devote our entire lives to striving for greatness we will never achieve, is that most of your time will be spent on this planet striving for something you do not yet have, right? So you've got the yacht, right? You've got the money. You've got the friends. You've got it all, right? Are you content? No, because you spend your time on your yacht envisioning the bigger yacht you want to buy tomorrow. So something about this eternal perspective that God has given us has cursed us to always want more and never be satisfied and content and be able to savor the moments that God has put right in front of us. So my question for us today is why? Why would God even put that in our brains? Why wouldn't he let us be more like our dogs? Why do we have to be human? Why do we have to picture greatness? And why can we never be okay with the life that God has given us? Why are we always striving for more? I had an experience a few, weeks, a few years back when I had the opportunity to, to have an extended vacation, in a sense, with something called sabbatical leave. I had been talking to Pastor Larry about some stirrings God had put in my own life to pursue a senior pastoral role in a church someday, somewhere. And this was before we had started the conversation here, really. And so he had said, hey, well, why don't you go off on this sabbatical time and wrestle with the Lord? What does he want for you in your life, right? And for like five minutes, I thought, this is going to be awesome. And then the five-minute timer expired, and I started feeling this weight of pressure coming in on me, like, this is a rare gift I'm about to receive. Right? Eight weeks off of work with no assignments, nothing to do but pray. I better make the most of this time. I don't want to squander it. I don't want to come back. And Larry says, how was your sabbatical? And I'm like, oh, I just chased birds all day, right? I, I want to be able to come back and say, God has changed my life. Let me tell you about everything that I did. I prayed this much. I read this much. I learned these things. I studied this much. I led 74 people to Christ, right? Here's all the amazing thing I did during my time of rest. I'm so exhausted now. There's something in me that just wanted to take this gift of time and instead of savoring it, multiply it, magnify it, make it bigger. I had a vision for this time that was huge and that would change my life forever. And that's naturally how we kind of think, isn't it? Solomon is known in the scriptures as the wisest man who ever lived. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, you get to kind of watch as he has this mental breakdown in the first two chapters, as the wisest man who ever lives realizes that the brain inside of his head is trying to kill him. And he says, I gained all this wisdom, and I wanted to know what to do with this wisdom, and it was making me mad. I thought, well, maybe I should pursue pleasure, right? And so I used my wise mind to figure out what's the best way to achieve a pleasurable life with happiness and friends and family and wine and women and song, right? The whole thing. I just wanted it to be an amazing, pleasure-filled life. But you know what? Pleasure doesn't accomplish anything. There was no end to it. So I thought, well, maybe I should amass some wealth and build some things. And so I, I got cattle and I got oxen and I got houses and I got more houses. I had a yacht. He didn't have a yacht, but I had a yacht, right? I had it all. <laughs> but there's nothing to all that. And so I thought I should do something. And so I started building 
I built infrastructure projects for my country. I started giving my people a great place to live, and I just thought I can leave a legacy that this place is better off now than it was when I started. But as I looked at what I had built, I realized, what's the point? I started imagining what's going to happen when I leave this earth. Who's going to take over this place? I started watching things decompose in front of my eyes. I watched me giving my riches to my child and him being an idiot and squandering all of it. And in the midst of all of this, I just started realizing that there's nothing I could do in this life that can guarantee an eternal return on investment. And Solomon takes all of that and he summarizes it this way in chapter two. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is where he starts the book. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. All is meaningless. You know, we read Solomon's words and we start praying for him. Solomon, God, I pray that Solomon would meet Jesus and find meaning in his life. There's something about this. We're like, okay, obviously this is a description of someone who has not yet found Christ because in Christ there is meaning. In Christ there's eternal meaning. There's an opportunity not to build buildings, but to build souls for eternity. There's an opportunity to be in my neighborhood so that people come to Christ. I have a family so that I can have grandkids who follow the Lord someday, right? I am here to leave a legacy, not for myself, not with money, not with buildings, but with everlasting life as people believe and follow Jesus. If Solomon only knew what I knew, Solomon would be totally content like I am. Because you strive and strive to build this picture of a godly family, but your kids just won't follow Jesus. Because you try and try to be an influence in your neighborhood for the gospel, but you're not seeing a lot of return on that eternal investment. Because you struggle and struggle with wanting to make a life that makes an impact for eternity. But when you look back at the 40 years or 60 years or 16 years you've been on this planet, you wonder, God, have I ever done anything right? I would bet you that if we could talk to Billy Graham, which we can't, but if we could talk to Billy Graham and say, Billy Graham, how did you do it? You made so much impact. You must be so satisfied. I bet you he would say, I bet I could have done more. I squandered so much of my time. Probably. Because that's what we tend to think. We wasted our time when our kids were small. We wasted our opportunities in that last job to share the gospel. We wasted those opportunities God has given us to change the world, and now I don't know if I've done anything with this life he's given me. Meaningless. Meaningless. We think as Christians, too. Solomon's conclusion in chapter 2, he says, a person can do nothing, nothing better than to eat and to drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Nothing better. Nothing better than to just go and have a nice dinner with your family after a hard day's work and you were content with the job you had. That's the best a person can do. If we were dogs, we'd be like, yes! (laughs) 
but we're humans. And so we look at that, and we don't buy it because we, we believe there's got to be a way to get more out of life than just enjoying the moments, the string of moments that God has chained together for us. And yet that's the advice of the wisest person who ever lived. When we go back, we started in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. If we go back to that, Solomon says, I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. I've seen it. And here's how he describes the burden. First, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, this is where he starts out by saying there's a time and a place for everything. If you've heard the song before, right? A time to whatever, a time to whatever, right? A time. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I hope you do. A time to cast away stones. Or I don't know who cares. There's a t- read it in the Bible. Chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3. There's a time to mourn, a time to rejoice, a time to refrain from embracing, right? There's a time for all of that. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And so Solomon says, here's the burden. Number one, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Right? That means that when it's time to have dinner with your family, it's beautiful. When it's time to go to a memorial service and cry, that's a beautiful thing. When it's time to go to war and serve your country, that's a beautiful opportunity. When it's time to experience peace, that's beautiful too. It's all so beautiful. Doesn't sound like a burden yet. But he says, but here's where it starts to get burdensome. Number two, God has also set eternity in the human heart. And yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What he's saying is, when you look at the events that God places us in this world, they're all beautiful in and of themselves, but we cannot enjoy these beautiful moments because there's something in us that can see the ultimate goal we're trying to create, and none of us can grasp the eternality of God. None of us can get to that place we want to get, and so we don't enjoy the dinner with our family because our mind is thinking about the empire we're trying to build at work. We can't enjoy the morning at the memorial service because we're thinking about all the things that we're going to say when we get up on stage, right? We can't enjoy the party, the fiesta when our daughter gets married because we're thinking about how much it's going to cost, right? We can't enjoy all of these moments in life because our mind is always thinking about the next thing, the bigger thing, where we're trying to get with all this. And at the end of the day, we have no control over the things we're trying to build. God's got some plan but he hasn't revealed it to us. And so we can see a a family that lives in our home, and we can see a vision of grandkids and great-grandkids who follow Jesus, and we want that so desperately, but we don't know how to get there, and we spend our whole life striving for that, but we miss the opportunities here because our minds are consumed with something bigger and better and greater. We live under this burden, Solomon says, that if you were a dog... You'd just be smiling and panting all the time. But since you're a human, you can't just enjoy that meal as a gift from God because you're always thinking about things that are bigger and better that you have no control over. The question that I wrestle with as I read this concept, which I know is true because I feel it, the question that emerges is why? (laughs) Why would God give us a vision for greatness when we don't have the ability to carry it out? Why would he put eternity in the hearts of men and women and kids? Why would he give us the ability to look deeply into the future but not give us any grasp, any handles by which we can get there? It's like it's all chasing after the wind, Solomon says. You might notice as you look in the Bible that whenever people ask God why, he says, 
That's him saying nothing. He doesn't say anything. God, why am I in this? God, why have you made me this way? God, what's your plan here? What are you trying to do? And as you read through Ecclesiastes, trying to figure out why would God make human beings with infinite eternal minds, but they have no ability to grasp the eternality of God? Why would we live in that? There's no answer. There's a bunch of application points, but there's no answer. And yet, since I'm one of those people who's striving after things, I'm always asking, God, what is the answer? And this week, I just couldn't stop wrestling with that question. I went on a walk, and I'm praying, and I'm asking God, please, I've got to give a sermon on Sunday. The people want to know why. God, just tell me why. I won't tell anybody except for these people, right? <laughs> I want to journal, think, pray. And God didn't give me the answer. He didn't show me in the Bible where the answer is. But one of the things that God did reveal to me as I was wrestling with this why question it's kind of God tapped me on the shoulder and said, Danny, you know you treat your kids the same way as I treat you, right? Or you give your kids glimpses of realities in the future all the time that they have no control over. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was thinking about it. Like, what? You got like a two-year-old or a four-year-old. Why do you ask your four-year-old, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> we ask that all the time, don't we? That's the first thing you ask a four-year-old and you meet, hey, how you doing? What do you want to meet when they grow up? Or what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be a dinosaur. Right? <laughs> right? And we're never like, that's stupid. Go to school, right? Because like, that's an appropriate answer for a four-year-old. Like, the thing that's crazy is you ask a four-year-old what they're going to do with their career someday. Right? They have no concept for that. I'm driving with my eight-year-old. I'm like, hey, just eight more years and you get your license. What's he supposed to do with that knowledge? <laughs> right? He says, dad, can I drive today? No! Stupid. Right? What gave you that idea? I said, well, you were talking about driving. I don't know why you're bringing up the subject. Like, I don't know either. I just felt really, it was really important for me to give you a glimpse of a future that you have no command over getting to at this point. But if my eight-year-old said, Dad, I really heard you in the car today. Oh, man, that, that compelling vision of me driving is just too much for me. I, I'd love your permission, Father, to go and, and study the DMV handbook. Right? I'd be like, whoa, whoa. That's weird, right? I, I was just trying to dangle a carrot in front of you. I don't know why. Right? I don't know. And I give my kids these glimpses of this future that I, it's not even I don't expect them to do anything with this carrot I'm dangling. There's nothing they can do at this point. Like my daughter doesn't understand that you can't be a wolf when you grow up. You just can't, right? <laughs> my kids don't understand. That you, these concepts that we lay in front of them, they don't even know how to get there, but we give them these big pictures of a future that they're not ready to pursue yet. So I don't know why God does that to us, but I was thinking, why, why do we do that to our own kids? I, I think that we truly believe that there's something powerful about getting a vision towards something even when you're not ready to step into it yet. Rather, there's something important about asking a kid what they want to do when they grow up. There's something important about asking the 12-year-old, where are you going to go to college someday, right? Even though they're like, what's a college? I don't know, right? But we're trying to implant something in their mind that we believe kind of turns the trajectory of their lives in a direction that's healthy, right? We know that my kid's not going to drive anytime soon, but when he hears about getting a license in eight years, he'll be like, oh, I heard about that one time. That sounds like a good idea, right? That when my daughter, who wants to be a dinosaur when she grows up, I made that up, she doesn't, but who wants to be a dinosaur when she grows up, 
Well, someday when the question comes back again, it's like I primed her in some way by getting her thinking at a very young age about something I want her to walk in later. And I wonder if that's not what God is doing for us when he gives us glimpses of vision that we have no control over taking part in. It's almost like God wants us to live with an eternal trajectory and a childlike faith. And he wants us to set our hearts on something bigger, set our minds on something greater, set a vision that God can do anything, anything he calls you to do. He can make it amazing. But don't run after it. You're only four, right? Just play with your Legos. Just, Just do the thing that God puts in front of you today. And someday, maybe he'll get you there. You know, I, I was in that season of wrestling about what I was going to do with that little sabbatical time. And so I, I invited this guy into my life who's kind of a mentor guy and said, hey, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about this stirring in my heart to really make the most out of this time that I have off of work for eight weeks. He said, sure. So I said, here's how I'm feeling compelled that I just want to maximize this time. I want to leverage it well. I want the best return on my investment. Right? I'm using all these finance terms. Like, I really want to see maximum gains on these eight weeks, right? I want to be so fit at the end of them. I want it to be amazing, right? And he stops me. And he says, Danny, I hear you using a lot of words like maximize and leverage and ROI. That makes it sound like you're trying to grab the reins of this and and take it where you want it to go. He said, would you consider making this time of sabbatical a time when you let go of the reins of your life? And instead of trying to drive it somewhere, you just listen to Jesus and go wherever he tries to drive you? I'm like, well, that's a good idea. (laughs) And as he said it, I realized that he was being really nice because... (laughs) What he was describing was not how to best utilize a sabbatical. What he was describing was the Christian life. Where what we're supposed to have signed up for, right, is when we stepped into faith, we let go of the reins of our life. We decided, I'm not going to build anything. I'm just going to mess it up. I'm not going to drive anywhere. I'm just going to botch the whole thing. I just want to give control of my life to Jesus. I'm going to hug him, and I'm just going to trust that when I open my eyes, I'm in a better place, Right? That's not really how it works. But Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, striving and working, you can do nothing. I think this is what Solomon is trying to get at when he keeps giving us the moral of the story, like how to relax, let go of the reins, look at an eternal vision, but live in the moments that God has crafted for us. I'm surprised as I read through Ecclesiastes how many times Solomon says the same thing over and over and over again. Now, this is not going to be efficient, but I'm going to read to you all the times that Solomon does this. He starts in verse two, or chapter 2. We already did this. He says, uh, I know our person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. And this, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? He says in chapter 3, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. Hear that? He says, God can do amazing things. Just enjoy your dinner, man, right? Like God can do amazing things. Chapter five, he says, it's appropriate for a person to eat, there's a lot of eating, to drink, a lot of drinking, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. 
Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. It says, if you have the privilege of having money and stuff and you're happy, great. Don't think about that there's no meaning in any of that. Just enjoy it, right? He says in chapter eight, so I commend, did I already say this one? So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Their joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. And then finally, this one's my favorite. It's the last one. I do enjoy this time, not rush through it. So, oh no, go, go, go. Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white. That means keep your holiness high. Always anoint your head with oil, right? Keep your head up. Enjoy, this is my favorite part, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Right? So enjoy this meaningless life that God has given you. Enjoy a meaningless meal with your meaningless wife and your meaningless kids, right? <laughs> Just enjoy it, right? It'll keep your mind off the fact that your life is meaningless. <laughs> and it sounds like he's gone crazy. But Solomon is advocating to have found the meaning of life, which if you look at the whole kind of corpus of Ecclesiastes is this. Solomon charges us to live with our vision in eternity and our hearts in each moment. He says it's good to honor the creator in the days of your youth. It's good to try to make a return on investment spiritually. It's good to honor the vows you make to the Lord. It's good to go to the temple without haste and to pray and to worship. It's good to do all those things. But don't get ahead of yourself. You can't accomplish anything in this world. Only God can. So live with your vision in eternity and your heart in each moment. That's what God's called you to do. Right? When we look at the, the M&M jar that makes up a human life, we're like, oh, no, that's not very many M&Ms. How will I maximize the return on this investment? Solomon would say, you can't. All you can do is take out one M&M at a time and say, God, what do you want me to do with this one? And realize he's probably going to say, eat it slowly. <laughs> Put it in your mouth. It's a peanut one. It's delicious. <laughs> take your time. Savor the moment. Because in those moments, God shows up and does amazing things. I would bet that if you would look back at the most significant moments in your life, most of those moments were not planned by you. I think of times like the biggest lessons I learned. I learned by watching someone who had no idea I was watching them do something. They had no idea I was watching them do. I think of people who said a passing comment to me and God just like stuck it in my heart and wouldn't let me go. Right? These people had no idea they were affecting my life for eternity, the, the trajectory of my work on this planet forever. They had no idea. They were just living their lives, enjoying the moment. But as they enjoyed the moments they had, I was watching that. And God, in those moments, he like grabs a hold of me and says, live like that. Do, do this. Change the trajectory of your life. You never know when, when a random comment that you say at dinner is going to change someone's life forever. 
And the problem is when you spend all your time trying to maximize your time on earth, you'd spend a lot less time saying meaningful things at the dinner table with your kids. So live with your vision and eternity in your heart in each moment. Enjoy dinner with your family and see what God does. Enjoy the conversation around the water cooler and see what God does. Get back to work and work hard with a good attitude and see what God does through your example. Open your mouth and share the gospel when you're given the opportunity and see what he does. Live as an example of your neighborhood. Take your neighbor's trash cans in and see what God does. You might not ever see what he does. But more than seeing what he does, trust that that is the way that God calls you to live with an eternal vision that sets the trajectory of your life on the right path and a heart that's committed to making the most and savoring every moment and trusting that the moments of life are where God meets us and brings heaven to earth and changes the world. Your life will probably look a lot like your golden retriever's life if you do that, but God will use that golden retriever life of yours to change the world forever. Let's pray.